When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Something else. It's 1997, and Christopher Mayer is in Germany. He's a British diplomat, newly installed as ambassador in Berlin. So I was sitting there minding my own business on the banks of the Rhine, smartening up my German, really starting really to enjoy the job, and then the phone rings. It was the permanent undersecretary in the Foreign Office on the line, with news. We're moving you. We're, we're moving you to Washington. And you could have knocked me down with a, with a feather. Washington? He'd only just got to Germany. And he'd only been four months in the job. And I remember saying to him something like, What? Are you joking? And he said to me, You mean you don't want to go? And I said, Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm not going to say no. To the United States. And so Mayer goes back to London and waits for his new instructions. And after a couple of days at home, he gets called in by the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. He said to me, basically what Tony wants is for you to get up uh, the arse of the White House and stay there. When Mayer was posted to Washington, Bill Clinton was president, and getting close to him, no problem. But an election was on the way which would present a new challenge. There was a name floating on the wind on the Republican side, and that was George W. Bush, governor of Texas. And we all knew bugger all about it. We had a clue. I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair and Iraq. Episode 2, The Prime Minister and the President. How America and Britain joined forces to go to war in Iraq is a complicated story, not a straight road, more like a, a maze with all kinds of false turnings. And to understand the twists and the turns, you need to know the two men most closely associated with the war, George Bush and Tony Blair. I'll come to George Bush in the second part of this episode, but let's begin with Blair. And to do that, I want to take you back to May the 1st, 1997. A night I'll never forget. Good evening. For weeks, we've watched the politicians slugging it out together. Tonight, at last... I was on stage in the BBC's election studio, waiting for Big Ben to strike ten. Uh, in a moment, when the polls close, I'll bring you what I really promise is the last poll of this election. I've done this many times before, and in every election since 1979, there'd only ever been one party elected. Britain has swung decisively to the Conservatives in the general election, and later today, Mrs Thatcher will become Prime Minister. 
the Conservatives, Britain's rough equivalent of the Republican Party. And I have accepted. It is, of course, the greatest honour that can come to any citizen. In but on election night 1997, there was a feeling that all was about to change. The Conservatives had been in power for 18 years, and Labour, the party of the left, seemed to be on the rise. As I stood there on that stage, waiting for the clock to strike 10, I felt keyed up. This was a big moment. We've spoken to 14,000 people in 200 constituencies tonight, and uh, we hope they've been telling us the truth. To understand how we got to this moment, Britain on the verge of a major change in its political landscape, maybe we should meet someone who, six hours later, would join me on the studio floor. So, what was it, what was it like for you to be summoned down or invited down to be in the television studio. Can you remember going into that place? And oh, God, I felt as though I'd made it. You, you made my... I can still remember it now, David. It was just like, you know, it was the icing on the cake. This is Lorna Fitzsimmons. I was one of the youngest uh, Labour MPs to be elected in 1997, and my parliamentary constituency was Rochdale. An old wool and cotton making town near Manchester in the north of England. She grew up when British politics was dominated by one party and one person, Margaret Thatcher. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Thatcher, who, like Ronald Reagan across the Atlantic, had swept to power, promising lower taxation and staunch support for capitalism. For in a world of high taxes, there can be no true freedom, no hope of ownership, no individual fulfilment. At around the same time as Thatcher was dominant, Lorna went to art college and started getting interested in politics. And then the government tried to shut down art colleges and it made me really politically active. And from somebody who didn't read until I was 13, I became a national expert in education policy. She got more and more angry with the government, the Conservative government, and after a time, she had this light bulb moment. If you really wanted to affect change, you needed to pick a team and then you needed to really get active in it to make sure that the policies that I wanted were then adopted by my chosen party and the party that was most like me was the Labour Party. The problem was that in the 1980s, the electorate seemed to have lost faith in Labour. They were seen as being in favour of high taxes for everyone, not just the rich. And unlike Mrs Thatcher, winner of the Falklands War, they didn't seem interested in promoting Britain on the world stage. And so every few years, I'd hear myself on the BBC's election programme announcing Conservative election victory. She's going to have a landslide with a majority of about 146 over all other parties. In the After election victory. The Conservatives will be back in Westminster. That means that Mrs Thatcher would remain Prime Minister. She'd have a majority. In and Labour was basically out in the cold. Now, during those wilderness years, Lorna worked for the party, desperate to bring them back to power. And then in 1994, John Smith, Labour's leader and their great hope, died. 
I remember where I was when John Smith died. And I remember then knowing that it had to be Tony. A speech by British Labour Party leader Tony Blair. Today I set out my vision for our party and our country. What we are, where we stand, and how we will govern. As soon as you hear it, you know, you feel it. It's like when you hit cut crystal, you know it's crystal. We meet in a spirit of hope. Hope that we can rid our country of this Tory government. Their broken promises, their failed policies. Pollsters say that the public don't know much, but they're not stupid. They know when they've heard it. And in Tony Blair, they seemed to like what they heard. He was young, fresh, confident, and charismatic. And just as Clinton had rebranded the Democrats, the new Democrats, Blair rebranded Labour, new Labour. He said he believed in the market and wasn't afraid of capitalism. Not just to promise change, but to achieve it. The historic goal of another Labour government. Our party, new Labour. Our mission, new Britain. New Labour, new Britain. Now, by this time, Lorna is working in advertising in London, and one day she gets a phone call from an old colleague of hers in her student politics days. And so he phoned me up and he said, Lorna, you're from Rochdale. It's been made an all-women shortlist. You should go for this. I did it in 48 hours, submitted it. That was it. That was done. And it was the best thing I've ever done. The Tories had been in power for almost two decades. They were thought to be stale and out of touch, and every day there were new accusations of sleaze and scandal hitting the party. It really did feel like something had to change. There, it was just a wave after wave after wave of possibility and excitement, and people got involved. That cul-de-sac of fourth-generation single parents, Asian women, who had never been involved in politics before. Politics looked different. But still there was always this nagging doubt. If you haven't won an election for 20 years, it's hard to imagine you're ever going to win one. Even though you do the numbers and the figures, you still don't think you're gonna win until you've won. And so on election day, May the 1st, 1997, at one minute before the polls close, Lorna is still pounding the streets dragging people out of their houses in their gym jams, still saying, it's too close to call, come and vote. Not, an, I, didn't, I didn't shut up shop until 10 o'clock. And that takes us back to the BBC election studio, where I'm standing waiting for Big Ben to strike 10 and to give the news the whole country is waiting to hear. There it is, 10 o'clock, and we say, Tony Blair is to be prime minister and a landslide is likely. Sedgefield already down there on the right in the Labour Club, all applauding there. It was just like, you know, my, my body's getting all tingly thinking about just how, you know, it was, it, and I think it was because it was such a national thing. It wasn't, it wasn't just personal euphoria, it was everybody's euphoria. 
to the Tory vote after the Great Reform Act in 1932 when they were led by the Duke of Wellington. It was like uh, nothing else that I have ever really experienced in my life. It cut across every section and segment of society wherever you went. There was hope, there was goodwill, there was happiness, there was involvement, there was engagement. And in a constituency like Rochdale, where it's you know perennially grumpy and won't open the door to you, that was absolutely and utterly historic. The next thing Lorna knows, she's getting a call to come down to London. The BBC producers wanted her on the programme because she was representative of a new generation of politicians, young and ambitious and a woman. ...that you are essentially professional politicians with no other life. The reality is that the Parliament has been dominated by people that have been, on the whole, over 50. Now, the reality is that the people of this country, and certainly women, feel totally and utterly excluded from that. They've not exactly shown that they're good at making decisions on our behalf. Tony Blair and Labour were on top of the world. A new dawn has broken, has it not? Blair was victorious and with huge public support. The youngest Prime Minister since 1812 and with more than twice as many members of Parliament as his opponents. Game, set and match. And he was ambitious, not just to revive Britain's fortunes at home, but to build up her influence on the world stage, to make her a global force for good. And in his mind, the best way of doing this was to show that unlike the old Labour Party, which was suspicious and distrustful of America's power, he would ally himself with Washington and with the president he so much admired, Bill Clinton. Very well, I'd like to have a 179 seat majority. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to give any advice. I'm going to sit here and take it. But in politics, things are never that straightforward. Because even as Christopher Mayer, Blair's appointment as Britain's new ambassador to the US was settling into his grand mansion on Massachusetts Avenue, gossip at Washington dinner parties was focusing on something else. Who would the Republicans choose to challenge the Democrats in November 2000? When we arrived in DC in October 97, uh, there was there was a name floating on the wind on the Republican side, and that was George W. Bush, governor of Texas. And we all knew bugger all about it. We had a clue. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. We pick up in late 1997. Tony Blair has been elected Prime Minister, and he's chosen Christopher Mayer as his new ambassador to Washington, with one clear, simple instruction. He said to me, basically, what Tony wants is for you to get up uh, the arse of the White House and stay there. This is one of the reasons Christopher's been chosen, because the world of diplomacy seems to attract two sorts of people. There are the rather buttoned-up, serious types, you know, obsessed with the details of negotiating trade deals and the like, people who know every subsection of a subsection of a long-forgotten clause in a treaty. And then there are people more like Christopher, slightly maverick, freewheeling, attracted by the romance of diplomacy, enjoying the excitement of meeting people from different backgrounds and cultures. And they're often flamboyant. Christopher Mayer was famous and sometimes ridiculed for his bright socks, so much so his Twitter handle nowadays is at Sir Socks. And this British charm, this mild eccentricity, meant Mayer was perfectly placed to cosy up to those in power. The first thing I did was to get to know movers and shakers, people who took decisions in the White House, in the State Department, in the Defence Department, on Capitol Hill. You try and spread like a stain across the upper levels of the administration. How do you go about doing that? Endless dinner parties and tennis matches or what? You go and see people. You go and call on people and they're very happy to see you. They're, you know, the, doors, the doors are open everywhere because you're the British ambassador, not because I have a lovely smile or anything like that. I would invite the key people just to very personal lunches, one-on-one, just me and them, nobody else, get to know them. Christopher's job was to try to massage what Britain calls the special relationship. Britain's always been obsessed by this so-called special relationship with America. It's never been really clear what it is. There is, of course, a common language and, for some Americans, a common heritage. But it all seems to depend on who's president and who's prime minister. It's a relationship that waxes and wanes, usually due to the personalities of the two countries' leaders. Harold Wilson didn't get on with Richard Nixon, but Thatcher and Reagan loved each other. And we had the same political dreams and the same ways of achieving them. Britain's default position is that in some mysterious way, by staying close to America, she can always bring influence to bear on American foreign policy and so help create the kind of world that suits Britain. As one British Prime Minister famously put it, we can be the Greeks to their Romans. Or to put it more crudely, they have the power, but we have the brains. Anyway, it's this special relationship that Tony Blair believes he must nurture, and Christopher Mayer is his man for the job. Now, 1998 marked a period of very good relations. And it was quite clear that Tony Blair and Bill Clinton got on very well and Cherie got on very well with Hillary. 
After all, basically, they shared the same politics. Blair had copied Clinton's model for getting elected. New Democrats, new Labour. So it was at one of the high points in the relationship since 1945. And Blair was determined that this relationship would continue to remain on a high. He set out a vision to Clinton of British and American power hand in hand, that the two countries together could look outwards and use their combined talents and military force to make the world a better, more tolerant, more liberal place. And they actually tried to carry out that vision. Blair and Clinton helped topple Milosevic after he invaded Kosovo. The war is over, but we have to build a better peace for Bosnia and all the people of southeastern Europe. And the British army drove rebel forces out of Sierra Leone. Meet Tony Blair Kamara. At six years old, he is living, breathing testimony to this country's gratitude. Blair pushed Clinton to be more interventionist, for an America more engaged with the world. We need you. We need America engaged. We need the dialogue with you. Europe over time will become stronger and stronger, I believe, but its time is some way off yet. But despite the coziness between Blair and Clinton, Mayer realizes he has a potential problem looming. It's easy for him to get close to someone like Clinton, a president who pretty much shares the same value system as the prime minister. But there's an election coming up. I knew as soon as I arrived in Halloween 97, um, with the presidential election in 2000, that I had to start very soon looking into potential uh, candidates for the presidential nomination of either party and try and pick out who was likely to do well. On the Democratic side, it was pretty obvious. Al Gore, Bill Clinton's vice president, had the nomination locked up before there was really a contest. And at the time, the view back in London was that Gore was going to win. And they'd be dealing with Al Gore, and it would be a kind of Clinton mark too, and it would be third way, new Labour, new Democrats, um, mark two. But Mayer wasn't so sure. He had a feeling that America might be ready for change, that the political mood was shifting. And that meant he was going to have to suss out the Democrats' opponents in the Republican Party. And so Christopher starts to do what he does best. He invites people of all opinions up to his embassy for a drink or a private meal, one-on-one, -on -one, and he listens carefully to what they say. There was, there was a name floating on the wind on the Republican side, and that was George W. Bush, governor of Texas. And we all knew bugger all about him. We had a clue. I mean, people would say, oh, yeah, he's a very amiable guy and um, all that. So I thought the only thing to do is go down and see him. And at the beginning of 1998, off Mayer goes, accompanied by his wife. We went to see the governor and I was really impressed by him. I mean, his style could not have been more different from Clinton's. It was very frank, very open. I mean, we were total bloody strangers. He said to us, oh yeah, I used to drink too much, but I got over that now confessing to having been an alcoholic and he got through all that and he was now a serious guy. And I really liked him and I obviously sent back to London a very positive report about him. And then a year later, he goes back to Texas on another scouting mission. 
And the first person he goes to see is Bush's right-hand man, the famous Republican election strategist, Karl Rove. And Rove said, yep, he's going to declare, he's going to run, and we think we stand a very good chance of beating Al Gore. So after seeing Rove, Mayer gets his second appointment to go and see Bush. One of the things that impressed both Catherine and me was not only was he frank about his sort of past issues with drink, he was very frank about not knowing almost anything about foreign affairs. He said, well, I once went as a child to Scotland. And then he said, I travelled with my father when he was president once to Israel. And I think he said, I've also been to Italy. And my wife, Laura, did a teaching exchange somewhere in southern England. He said, that's about it. And we know a little bit about Mexico. And then just as Christopher was leaving, Bush said, I'm going to have to surround myself with good people to, to bring me up to speed on this. I'm really going to have to learn about all these issues in the world, like uh, Russia and the Middle East. and uh, So he said, I'm going to need some help from Tony Blair as well, who I hear is a good fellow. But apart from getting help from Blair, Christopher's wondering, who is he going to get advice on foreign policy from? And we're good. And now you can hear me, and what do you know? All right, it's a miracle. <laughs> this is Robert Kagan. He's an author and a historian, and he has a pivotal role in this story because he helped shape an argument, an argument that would help define George Bush's ideas about foreign policy and America's place in the world. Yeah, I mean, I was in college at a, I guess, a, I guess maybe they're all interesting, but it was kind of an interesting moment because I was in college in the late 1970s. This was a moment in America when its role on the world stage was very much up for debate. Questions of what role the United States was playing in the world and whether the United States was in fact in decline, which was a very common view at that time. And people actually believed that maybe the Soviet Union and, and communism sort of owned the future. This May Day celebration in Moscow gives the Russians the opportunity to crow loud and long over the West. For the it was only a few years since the Vietnam War had ended and America hadn't really recovered from its defeat. They had all those famous movies like Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter and whatnot. And I think Americans in general were trying to come to grips with what, what Vietnam was all about. One conclusion that some Americans came to was that their country should give up trying to make the world follow its example, should abandon adventures to impose freedom and democracy. This monstrous chessboard game of power politics, this game which all others play, with our boys and the Vietnamese people as pawns. These pawns bleed, and the players of the game aren't going to win. But that was not the view that won out. Because in 1980... But let me, let me just say first, let me just say first of all, this has been, well, there's never been a more humbling moment in my life. Ronald Reagan was elected and America once again has a president who sees America's role as setting the world to rights, with the United States itself, as he famously described it, the shining city on a hill, a beacon of hope for the whole world. I certainly had a sense that because of Reagan, the United States in a way had returned to 
playing an important leadership role in the world. Reagan said it was time to confront the enemy of everything America stood for, communism, in the form of the Soviet Union, or the evil empire, as he called it. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. No ifs, no buts, the Soviet Union had to be defeated. That made a big impression on me and others, that the United States really did have an important role to play, and that maybe contrary to what people might have thought during the Vietnam years, that that role was also welcomed. It made such an impression on Robert that he got a job in Reagan's State Department, working alongside a lot of people who'd later become famous as the architects of the Iraq War. People like Donald Rumsfeld, George W.'s Defence Secretary, and Paul Wolfowitz, his deputy. What they all had in common was admiration for Reagan's use of America's strength. And it seemed like the sort of strength that he'd exhibited had not actually made the world more dangerous. But had made the world safer. It all culminated for Kagan in Moscow, 1991. So we were there in the summer of 91 when the Russian Republic was born and Boris Yeltsin climbed up on the tank and I actually was pretty near the tank when he climbed up on it. So that was uh, quite an experience. But his optimism didn't last long. Good evening, the headlines at six o'clock. Waves of Allied aircraft have been bombing targets in Iraq and Kuwait all day long. In the previous year, Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, had invaded the small oil state of Kuwait. And President George H.W. Bush, George W.'s father, had put together a coalition of 35 countries to punish him for his breach of international law and expel him from Kuwait. It was swiftly achieved, but as the American forces swept up the road towards Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, they were told to halt. They could have gone on to remove Saddam from power. After consulting with Secretary of Defense Cheney, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Powell. But George Bush decided the mission had been accomplished. It hadn't included removing Saddam, only getting him out of Kuwait. All United States and coalition forces will suspend offensive combat operations. For Kagan, this was a sign that there were people, especially in the Republican Party, who believed it wasn't any longer their job to go around the world spreading freedom and democracy. Yeah, I would say that, that the fall of the Soviet Union uh, led to a very large number of people, including those who were very, you know, vigorous Reaganites and vigorous Cold Warriors, into thinking that, yes, the job was done. America's enemy had been defeated. America can now go back to being a normal nation. Rather than an exceptional one that uh, it had sort of shouldered a heroic burden during the Cold War, but now that the Soviet Union was gone and communism was defeated, that it wouldn't be necessary, and the United States could go back to being normal. And this was a very widespread view. The United States is always puzzling about what its proper role in the world should be. It's a constant debate inside and outside government, in think tanks and universities, through seminars and lectures and articles and books, and, of course, gossip around the Washington dinner tables of the powerful. And that's how Robert started to frame his argument, that the collapse of the Soviet Union and the retreat from Baghdad were actually moments of danger, 
both for America and for the world. My view was that the United States played a critical role in maintaining peace and security. The success of democracy around the world owed something to the fact that the United States was itself a democracy, was a superpower, and was engaged uh, around the world. And so it's not so much a question of duty. It's, it's more a question of if Americans want to live in a certain kind of world, there's no one else who can create that world and sustain that world. And if others want to live in that world, they also know that the United States is a critical part of making that world possible. These were the arguments Kagan was making, trying to win round former colleagues who thought that America should probably focus on America first. And I must say I felt pretty alone in arguing that that was not the case, uh, which I did in the 90s, even against the Republican Party, which was very much at that point turning, I won't say in an isolationist direction, but certainly in a direction toward retrenchment. He wanted to turn the Republican Party away from what he saw as the dangers of American isolationism. So the party that had been the Reaganite party was now the party that was saying that we're too involved in the world and we ought to be pulling back and were criticizing Clinton for excessive interventionism everywhere. It was the Democrats who'd become the interventionists. The Republicans no longer seemed interested in the rest of the world. Kagan started a think tank called the Project for a New American Century, and he coined a term for his philosophy, neo-Reaganism, and many people from his days in the Reagan administration joined him. They focused on a number of different issues, but there was one place that kept cropping up, Iraq. For some American conservatives, the decision not to send the troops into Baghdad back in 1991 when they'd had Saddam on the run, was a stain on America's reputation. One of those people, and a member of Kagan's new think tank, came to see Christopher Mayer just after he took up his post in Washington. And then I hadn't been there more than two weeks when Paul Wolfowitz asked to come and see me. Wolfowitz had worked with Kagan in the Reagan administration. So we have our first meeting in the embassy over a cup of coffee. And that is when I realize that he is utterly obsessed by what he considers the work left undone at the end of the first Gulf War, when in his view, and a lot of those on the right, the Americans should have marched all the way to Baghdad and toppled Saddam Hussein in uh, 1991. And the fact that the United States had not done that, done that had thus built up a load of trouble. Uh, for American interests in the Middle East. And he said, well, if I were in government now, I would invade southern Iraq, seize the oil fields, and sit there. Um, deprive Saddam of oil revenue until his regime crumbled. And then we would instill democracy. Now, this all sounds kind of crazy, even with the benefit of hindsight. It might sound crazy, but it was a view that was on the rise in the world of Washington conservatives. They lobbied so hard that they got Clinton to sign something called the Iraq Liberation Act, which made regime change in Iraq the official policy of the United States, though no one thought he'd act on it. But then, after Bush is elected in 2000, Christopher Mayer notices it's people like Paul Wolfowitz who start filling up slots within the Bush foreign policy team. 
alongside other veterans of Reagan's White House, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Pearl, the so-called Prince of Darkness. They're all people who want America to help use her power in the world to change the world, and all people interested in regime change in Iraq. They were known, as you might have guessed by now, as the neocons. Although, according to Christopher Mayer, it's sometimes hard to pin down what a neocon actually believes. Neocons cover, cover a multitude of sins, really. It's a bit like, you know, if a, if a rhinoceros walks into your, into your drawing room, it's quite, it's quite hard to describe, but you sure as hell know it's a rhinoceros. So this Republican president, surrounded by his neocon advisers, is the man that Tony Blair wants to get close to. A president with a vague sense of what his foreign policy priorities are, but with a powerful group around him who have a strong, clear, ideological vision of America's role in the world. Bill Clinton had said to Tony Blair, do not underestimate this man. Do not underestimate this man and get close to him because he, he's, he's no fool and, he's, and he knows his politics. And how did Bush feel about Blair? I had a conversation with Carl Rove about this, you know, the consigliere, the senior guy. And I said to Carl, how much of a problem is it that Tony Blair was so close to Bill Clinton and the Democrats? And he said, in his biblical way, by your work shall ye be known. Remember, Tony Blair's work is actually closer to some of the thinkers in the new Republican administration than people realised at the time. He was committed to what he saw as legitimate foreign interventions, think Kosovo, Sierra Leone. And Bush had actually told Christopher Mayer he was looking to Blair for some advice. Did this mean that potentially Blair could influence Bush, get close to the American president, help shape a joint foreign policy? These were all questions up in the air when the date for the first meeting between Bush and Blair was set, February 2001, the presidential retreat in the wooded hills of Maryland, Camp David. Mr Blair flew into the snow-swept presidential retreat for the first encounter between a European leader and the new president. So we fly in, we, we go to the presidential uh, log cabin, because it's all a collection, an assemblage, an assemblage of log cabins. We go to this big log cabin, which is the president's log cabin, and there's a, a table, and uh, we walk in. Bush is on one side of the table with Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, with Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor, with Andy Card, the Chief of Staff, and then, then, was, then there was us, the sort of four side, basically. It was pretty intimate. I, was, I must admit, I had slight butterflies. I thought, hell, what happens if this goes wrong? There were pressing policy issues to discuss and considerable curiosity about how the two men would get on on a personal level. Bush looks at Blair and says something like, Welcome, Tony. Can I call you Tony? Welcome to Camp David. Good to see you here. And everyone's sitting there waiting for what Blair is going to say back. And Blair, you've got to hand it to him, never missed a beat. It was a virtuoso performance at Camp David by Tony Blair, one has to say. And Blair said something like, um, well, it's good to be here, uh, George. Can I call you George? Sure. And off they went. These two guys were a marriage made in heaven. And from the first minute they met, they just got on. It was, it was striking. 
striking. And the mood went on like this for two days, everyone getting on well, chatting. They even watched Meet the Parents together. All the worries that these guys were cut from different cloth were gone. It was a loving. And then at the end, they held a press conference. Welcome. It's my honor to uh, welcome the Prime Minister from our strongest friend and closest ally to Camp David. As they told me, he's a pretty charming guy. He put the charm offensive on me. <laughs> and it worked. But at the very end, an American journalist said to Bush, a kind of killer question. At the last, very often the last question is a killer question. And it was? Um, a question for both of you. Um, there's been a lot said about how different you are as people. Uh, have you already, in, in your talks, found something, maybe that you, some personal interest that you have in common? Mr. President, what do you have in common with Mr. Blair? <laughs> and I was standing at the back, and uh, and Bush hesitated a nanosecond too much, and then he said, "The astonishment of everybody. We share the same toothpaste." Well, we both use Colgate toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to wonder how you know, you know that, George. <laughs> I looked at the, our, our journalists, our hacks, our political editors, and I could see uh, their eyes popping out of their heads. You know, what, what does this mean? Were they sharing the same bathroom? Um, we both got great wives. But Mayor says this was classic Bush, a bit uncomfortable at off-the-cuff questioning and his mind genuinely just going blank. And all he could remember was that in all the bathrooms of Camp David and all the cabins, Colgate toothpaste was supplied. But while this first meeting was very much about the two personalities, there was, of course, discussion of policy. They talked about Northern Ireland, about the Middle East. And then... There was Iraq. Yeah, Jim. Uh, we do know that there is a consensus that sanctions hurt the people of Iraq too much and perhaps saying <coughs> not enough. Mm -hmm. Did the two of you discuss ways of changing the sanctions to make them tougher on him? Bush was adamant in his reply. First, um, our beef is not with the people of Iraq. It's with Saddam Hussein. And secondly, any time anybody... But while his message was tough, the two leaders didn't seem to be thinking of any change of policy on Iraq, other than maybe making the sanctions regime less severe on the Iraqi people. Having said that, to the extent that sanctions are hurting the Iraqi people, we're going to analyze that. And this is what Christopher was picking up as well, from one of his main sources in the White House, Condoleezza Rice. What she was talking about in the first year of the George W. administration was containment sanction tightening. She was not talking about military action. But of course, this was before 9-11 and everything changed after 9-11. It was an event that, that was like no other and we were perfectly aware of the fact that it could be the first of many such events. So it, it turned... The only two things that could, could, could compare to it were financial crisis or the present crisis over COVID. That's next time on The Fault Line.
The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett and Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive.